Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8 and then uh, finish in Matthew chapter 9. And the reason we're doing that is because this is a trilogy. So we're going to look at uh, three, three, what some might say, three separate stories, but I think they all have the same theme. And as you can see, here's basically the theme for today. We're, We're going to see that King Jesus shows his authority in three different ways. Now, I'm not usually very creative, so if this doesn't work for you, I'm sorry, okay? But what I've come up with is three S's. The three ways that King Jesus shows his authority and power is over storms, Satan, and sin. Uh, if those three S's help you remember uh, this, this trilogy, then, then uh, well, praise the Lord for that. So, King Jesus shows his authority and power over storms, Satan, and sin. So let's look at the first one here in this, this particular trilogy. Remember, uh, by the way, we started in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, started that, that narrative section again. Uh, we saw another trilogy there where uh, Jesus cleansed the leper, uh, and after seeing the faith of that Roman centurion, he healed his servant, and then Jesus healed uh, uh, Peter's mother-in-law from the fever. And then we had that, that interlude where Jesus talked about the cost of following him. And now we come to another uh, set, a, a set of three miracles. And the first one we see here is that Jesus has power over storms. King Jesus has power over storms. Let's that's, that's, um, kind of work our way through this, this first miracle here. And, and I brought up the whole previous part there because notice in verse 23, it gives us the setting the setting is, is going back to what Jesus told the disciples to do. If you look at verse 18, Matthew 8, verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so now we've got this setting here in Matthew 8, verse 23, where they actually do what Jesus told them to do. They follow him. And it says in verse 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So there's your setting for this particular miracle. So they're, they're about to cross the, the Sea of Galilee. Notice there, there's a problem that arises as they're, as they're going across the sea here in verse 24. It says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. There's, there's the problem for you. <laughs> uh, I'm giving you a picture there of uh, uh, Rembrandt. I'm assuming Rembrandt was a Christian. Amazing the stuff that he, he painted. But uh, this, this is a picture of the disciples crossing the Red Sea as they're out there in the storm. Any of you ever been in a storm out in the sea or the ocean? Frightening thing. I, I haven't been to this extent, but uh, I understand the Sea of Galilee is is actually below sea level, approximately 600 feet or so below sea level. And then there's, there's mountains on, one, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and sometimes the wind will, will come rushing through there, and then it quickly just drops into the Red Sea and, and churns up the sea you know, to, to several meters high waves. And obviously it's, it's high enough. Notice it, it says in verse 24 that, that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Waves are coming into the boat. That would be a frightening thing. It's a big problem that they're in. But in contrast to the problem that the disciples are in here, notice what Jesus is doing in verse 24. I love that word but. But, but is a conjunction showing contrast here for you. Romans 8, or sorry, not Romans, Matthew 8, verse 24 there, it says, But he, that's Jesus, was asleep. <laughs> so here they are, they're out on the Sea of Galilee, they're in this storm, and the disciples are fighting these waves, this, this big storm, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. <laughs> Do you find the irony in that? The man who created the waves, who creates the storms, who's in control of the storms, is peaceful. Well, the disciples sure, sure weren't. Because look, uh, look, what, look what happens here in verse 25. The disciples, it says, they went and woke him. <laughs> and here's what they said to Jesus, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
The idea that they literally think they're going to die. All right, that's, that's what it's saying. They think they're about ready to die, and, and they, they can't understand why Jesus is sleeping through the midst of this. So the request is for Jesus, notice they called him Lord, to save them because they're perishing. But look at Jesus' response to their request there, verse 26. He, he that's Jesus, said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? By the way, kind of put yourself in their sandals for a moment. Uh, would that would that question strike you a bit odd if you were in the midst of a storm? Why are you afraid? I, mean, I don't know. If I was the disciple, I'd be thinking, why not? <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of the natural thing. And, and by the way, remember, these are experienced commercial fishermen. They spend a lot of time out on the sea. They know <laughs> what storms are like. I'm sure this isn't the first time they've experienced one. But these, these guys are actually afraid. So this must have been a really, really bad one. And, and I find it quite ironic that here, here these guys, experienced commercial fishermen, are going to a carpenter for help. <laughs> I love the irony in this. But Jesus says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Notice it's little faith. They, they obviously had some faith. They, they went to Jesus. But Jesus describes their faith as little faith. And look at the response. We see, then he, arose, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So there bring, there's a resolution to this problem here. Remember, what's the problem? The problem is the storm, right? They're, they're, the boat's being swamped. They're, they feel like they're about ready to die here in the midst of the storm. And so Jesus resolves this problem by rebuking the winds and the sea. And the resolution is there was a great calm. The sea goes flat. The waves are no longer coming into the boat. They're going to live. They're going to survive. Look at the results of what happens here in verse 27. The, it says in verse 27 that the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So Jesus continues to take these disciples on a journey, a spiritual journey. Uh, some of the disciples were sitting there as they heard the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Some of the disciples saw the miracles in chapter 8, the healing of the leper, the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law from the fever. They've heard Jesus talk about the cost of following him. So their, their faith is growing. They have little faith at this point, though. So Jesus continues to teach them that he has all authority and all power. So what lessons can we learn from this story? Number one, we learn that Jesus is master of nature. Jesus is master of nature. Uh, By the way, one, one phrase that bothers me is mother nature. There is no mother nature. There is only Lord, the the Lord of nature. The one who created nature. Nature, the one who created all the stars and the planets and the winds and the seas and the water and the, the rocks and the trees and all the plants and animals and people. There's only the Lord of nature. Christ is Lord of all, by the way, uh, including the natural world that we live in. Which is why he can command the waves and the sea and the winds to do what he wants them to do. And as a result of that, that means Christ is worthy of all of our allegiance. If he's Lord of all, then he is worthy of worship and worthy of our allegiance. Number two, you can have a living faith in God's sovereignty. You can have a living faith in God's sovereignty. Now, my friend, you're probably going to struggle with this truth, as I do, and as the disciples are obviously struggling with this truth 
Uh, we find every time the disciples turn from their dependence on Christ to, to, to looking at their situation, like, like in this case a storm, what happens? They fail. Jesus points this truth out to them. But the reality is if we put our faith in Christ, then Christ is going to strengthen us to, to have a living faith. He's going to reveal himself to us so we, we know him and, and hopefully love him and, and completely put our trust in him, even in the midst of an, a storm. Number three, the reality is Christians are going to go through difficult times. Okay, just because Christ calls uh, his disciples to follow him doesn't mean that there's going to be no cost. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Jesus talked about that in verses 18 through 22. He said, you know, follow me. You know, hey, there's going to be issues, right? There's going to, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to so-called go through the storms of life in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Life's not going to be easy. And we must at all times remain aware that God has never promised us to keep us from difficulties. Can can you find that promise in Scripture anywhere? It's not there. But you certainly see lots of other truth in Scripture showing that Christians will definitely go through difficult times. That's the reality. Okay? So you don't become a Christian to, to, you know, so you can become healthy, wealthy, wise, famous, you know, those sort of reasons. I hope not. Number four, the answer to fear is faith. We learn that the answer to fear is faith. These, these men had little faith. You've got to love this story. Don't, it's a great story. Here we have these guys. They're in the midst of this terrible storm. They're experienced commercial fishermen. And, and I love the irony of this. Here they are. They're going to the carpenter, the landlubber, right? As, as people who spend a lot of time on the water would call someone. And they're going to him for help. And even though they had only a little faith, it was obviously sufficient enough to enlist the power of Jesus Christ. He, they, somehow they, they knew they, they needed to go to him, and they did. It wasn't enough to remove their fear, though. They, they still had fear. What they needed was, obviously, big faith. They, they didn't know fully who Jesus was, apparently, at this time. They didn't have that big faith that, that could remove the fear in the midst of a storm. But God, by His grace, is able to do that. Praise God for that. So, let's move on to the second of this trilogy. There's a second miracle that takes place. We see here that Jesus, King Jesus, has power over Satan and demons. Look at verse 28. We see again that Jesus starts off with the setting here. In verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. So here, just to stop there for a moment, because what, what's happened is they, they've survived the storm. Jesus calmed the sea. They've made it to the east side, or east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Jesus wanted them to go. And he has a divine appointment to make, as he often does. And it's with two demon-possessed men. Notice it says there in verse 28, these demon-possessed men met him, and we see that they're, they're coming out of the tombs. These guys aren't living in houses. They're not living in what the place where, where you know a place like you and I live. They're living in the tombs. They're living in the cemetery, so to speak. Often the tombs of that day were made in the side of hills and caves and that sort of thing. There, and there would be a, there would be a place in there where they could get out of the weather. And that's where these two demon possessed men are living. And they come to Jesus with a question, very interesting question in verse twenty nine. Actually, they come with two questions. Look at the, the, it says, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? That's the first question. Look at the second one. Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Now, I'll comment on those two questions in a moment, but I'll just leave it there for the moment. They had a wish, though. Not a demand, it was a wish in verse 30. It says in verse 30, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And then in verse 31 it says, The demons begged him, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Notice the command. Jesus just gives a simple command here in verse 32. He said to them, to, these, to the demons inside these two demon-possessed men, he, what does Jesus say? He just says simply, go. That's all Matthew says, just go. And what happens? What's the result? The result is they came out and went into the pigs And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. That's result number one. As if that's not amazing enough, as a result of Jesus dealing with these demons, a whole whole horde of demons, not just one. But notice the second result here in verse 33. It had had an impact on the herdsmen, because look what it says. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. That's result number two. So apparently these, these unsaved Gentiles, and, and the reason most scholars believe they're Gentiles is because notice, what are they herding? They're, they're herding pigs, right? You, you know what Jews thought of pigs, right? That, that was one of those animals that God says, you know, it's, it's unclean animal. And even to, the, even to this day, the Orthodox Jew has, has, want, has nothing to do with a pig. So apparently, over there, and, and that was common of Jesus' day, by the way, over there on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, many Gentiles lived over there. So here, here's these apparently Gentiles herding these pigs, watching over them, and, and they're afraid as a result of seeing what happened to their pigs. Afraid of seeing what Jesus did. But there's a third result in verse 34. It says, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, Matthew doesn't mention this, but uh, if you read uh, some of the other gospel writers, they they mentioned that the reason for coming and talking to Jesus and telling him to leave is because they're actually afraid. They were afraid of Jesus. So that's the story. Let me point out a few things to you from, from the second part of this trilogy here, which shows that Jesus has power over Satan. Let me ask you a question. What does Satan do for a man? And that's, we, we, could, we could look at these two individuals here. Well, Mark kind of gives us some more details to help us understand what Satan and demons do for people. Look at Mark chapter 5. Keep your finger here. Mark chapter 5 is the, uh, the corresponding passage to Matthew chapter 8 here. Look at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole passage. Mark actually says more than uh, Matthew. So we'll just read the first five verses together. Mark chapter 5 verse 1 says, they came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is the same as the Gadarenes, same area. Verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So Mark, Mark only points out one, Matthew points out there was two. So Mark's, Mark's focusing on the, the, the most violent one of these two men. Mark and Matthew are not in, in disagreement, by the way. All right? They're just focusing on different details of the story. Okay? It's the same story, just focusing on different details. Okay? Notice what Mark says about this, this whole situation here. 
He says there in verse 2 that Jesus, as he steps out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. In other words, he's demon-possessed. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So he's very strong. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, let me just highlight a few things here. What Satan does for a man. Number one, Satan robs him of sanity and self-control. This, this, this man's no longer sane. He's no longer self-controlled. He has superhuman powers. He's living in tombs and cemeteries, places they don't normally live. He's, he, he's, he's doing strange things, isn't he? Number two, Satan's filled him with fears. And number three, Satan's robbed him of the joys of home and friends. He doesn't get to live with his family. He's not living in a house. He's not enjoying his friendship any longer. What Satan tries to do is he tries to condemn people to an eternity of judgment, if, if he can possibly do that. Satan loves to keep people in, the, in that type of a situation. There's a few things we can also learn about what society does for a man in need. We see society tries to restrain people like this, right? Societies come with chains and try to bind up this man, try to restrain him. And if that doesn't work, then you isolate the guy. You put him out in the tombs and you threaten him. But notice, interestingly enough here, society and government is not the Savior because society is unable to change someone in need like this. So the solution is not society. Solution is not government. It's never the solution. What is the solution? Well, Jesus Christ is the solution. So let's see what Jesus Christ can do for anyone, not just somebody who is demon-possessed, but what can Jesus Christ do for someone in need? Someone like you and me. Well, look at verse 15. Verse 15. That's Mark chapter 5, verse 15. It says, They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. A legion was 6,000, by the way. So there's a lot of demons in this man. The man who had had this legion of demons. Notice, this is after Jesus has got rid of the demons. He's cast the demons out. What is the man doing? He is sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And what is the result on society who can do nothing about the needy man? What is the result? They were afraid. They were afraid. You ever experienced that? You ever seen someone radically changed by the grace of God and, and, and the workmates and the friends and government and society can't figure it out? They're, they're, they're actually fearful they don't want to be around that person because the dramatic change is, is so dramatic they can't understand it it frightens them well that's what jesus has done here we see we see what can jesus do for anyone in need number one jesus comes to people in need remember he was on the west side of the sea of galilee the jewish side of the sea of galilee and he goes across, goes through the storm to this, to this Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus comes to people in need. And he will, he will even overcome storms and cultural barriers to do it. He went to the Gentile region. Number two, Christ delivers by the power of his word. We see Christ delivering just simply by the power of his word. Remember Matthew, all Matthew says is Jesus said, go. Jesus tells the demons, go, and and they're gone. They must obey. After all, he he created them. Now originally, remember, remember Jesus originally created angels, good angels, perfect angels. 
But remember, there was about a third of the angels who followed Lucifer, who eventually became the devil and Satan. And so they, they chose their path. They chose their eternal destiny, which is eventually going to be the lake of fire. So we see Christ delivering by the power of his word. And number three, Christ restores. Christ brings back the sanity. He, he restores this man to his, to his home, his family, his friends, his society. And the man is now able to serve Jesus Christ. In fact, the man wanted to, to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said no. So this is what Jesus can do for you. This is what Jesus does for me. This is what Jesus has done for me and is continuing to do for me. By the way, it's, it's worth noting what the demons believed here. Uh, some have called this the doctrinal statement of demons. <laughs> Very interesting what, what they say to Jesus Christ. Number one, notice... The demons called Jesus the Son of God. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 8. They called Jesus the Son of God in, in, uh, what is it, verse 29. They said to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? James wrote in chapter 2, verse 19, that the demons believe in God and they tremble. Did you hear that? The demons are not atheists. By the way, there is no such thing as, a, as an honest atheist, according to Romans chapter 1. The demons certainly are not atheists. They don't go around proclaiming that. The demons believe God and they tremble. And they know, they knew who Jesus was and they, they said that he was the Son of God. Yet they exceed this minimal confession in this story since they acknowledge that Jesus is God's Son. They're actually declaring Jesus Christ to be deity. They knew it. Number two, they understand and knew and believe that there's a final judgment and that they're going to suffer torment when that particular time comes. Too many people cherish dangerous illusions, I think, at this point. Too many people are uh, sadly mistaken For example, some people think that, number one, there's going to be no final judgment. Some people think you just die and and that's it. Therefore, there's no final judgment. You're dead, you go back to the elements that you came from. That's what some people think. That's a dangerous illusion. Number two, well then, there's those who think that God's going to spare them from the judgment. There's this unbiblical, ungodly philosophy out there that somehow God has these, these, these heavenly scales and he puts your good on this side and your bad on this side. And, 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 and a lot of people think their good's going to outweigh the bad and God's going to notice and he's just kind of going to let them off the hook, so to speak, and put them back in the water. Well, there's a, another dangerous illusion. There are th- those who think they don't have any serious shortcomings in God's sight. They think God is love. And and God loves everybody. And and there's this idea that everybody is God's child. And God just loves you. And he'll just kind of overlook the sin. There's another dangerous illusion. There's those who think that they're not going to be blamed for anything. God's going to be kind to them on judgment day. Or if there is a judgment, the place to which they're going to actually be sent is a pleasant place. God, there's no way this this kind of a God that they formed, this idol, which is what is what they're doing here. They've made an idol because they've formed their God in their mind and they think God's no, 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 okay, you know, I'm not perfect, but God's not going to send me to the place the Bible actually talks about. Well, my friends, I hope you don't believe that. I hope you don't believe any of those dangerous illusions. The demons don't believe that, do they? 
The demons do not have these dangerous illusions. They know that there is a hell. They know there is a lake of fire. They know they're going to be sent there at the proper moment. They actually talk about that here. And in this particular story, the greatest fear is that they're actually going to be sent to this literal place called hell before the final judgment. They were concerned about that. Which is why they begged Jesus, no, don't do that, not not now, send us into the pigs. So there is a final judgment, and they will suffer torment when the time comes. Number two, what what do the demons believe? Demons believe Jesus has authority to dispose of them as he wishes and when he wishes. So what are they acknowledging here? They're, They're ultimately acknowledging Jesus Christ's sovereignty, that he reigns supreme over all of his creation, including the demons, including Satan. The second psalm speaks of Jesus' sovereignty and warns us about it. Psalm chapter 2, don't turn there, but Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Kiss the capital S son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Did the demons do that? Did the demons kiss the son? No, of course not. Demons didn't do that. They didn't submit to King Jesus, but you and I can. We can. And by the way, we must submit to King Jesus if we are to be saved from hell. That is the only way you can be saved from hell. So my question for you is, for you is this. Have you done that? Have you submitted to King Jesus? Have you bowed before the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ? That's the point of these three miracles, showing the authority of King Jesus. But have you, in all areas of your life, have you submitted and bowed to the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ? Well, all this is actually about faith in Christ. It's about salvation. It's about discipleship. Notice there was an interlude in the previous verses talking about the cost of following Jesus Christ. And so when we read about the possession of these men who are possessed by demons, we're to understand that we are actually like them in more ways than we want to actually believe and think. We are like them, and we would be exactly like them if it wasn't for the grace of God. If it wasn't for God's mercy in our life, I would be like these demon-possessed men. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That's... And so when when people ask me, how are you doing, my normal pat answer is, I am better than I deserve. And I really believe that. Why? Because of God's grace. I would be like those men living out in the tombs, running around naked, breaking chains, scaring people, if it wasn't for God's grace in my own life. Oh yeah, we may not be possessed by demons, literally speaking, but... Even if we are saved by God's grace, we st- we're still possessed by an evil spirit of sin. We have this sin nature, this indwelling sin that goes with us everywhere we are. By the evil spirit of sin, by the way, I- I'm talking about your sin nature, okay? Don't freak out here. Uh, our sin leads us to various acts of violence, just as these demons did. It drives us from the company of other human beings. It divides humans, it divides families, governments, the world. It's even right to say we're, we are a dying people living amongst dead people, just as these demon-possessed men were. And so the reality is that, that life apart from Jesus Christ is just a graveyard. It's a cemetery. It's, it's, it's tomb. There's no natural hope of being saved unless Jesus comes, and praise God he did. Jesus came to these men. I don't think they knew they needed Jesus. Jesus comes to them anyway. They didn't want Jesus there, but Jesus comes and invades their life. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus did in my life. I didn't ask Jesus to come into my life, not at first anyway. But Jesus came. And Jesus comes uninvited, even when there's that evil spirit within us that's, that's hostile to Jesus Christ, that evil, that, that sin nature within us that that doesn't want him. What does the Bible say? We're at enmity with God. We're at war with him. We don't want him in our life. Jesus comes anyway. Salvation comes when Jesus 
addresses that evil spirit of sin, that sin nature, the indwelling sin. And what does he do to it? He does the same thing. In, if you're a believer, he did the same thing to you that he does to these demon-possessed men. He drives it away. He's, he commands it to go, and it obeys. And what does he do to us? What did Jesus do to me? Jesus left me as a five-year-old sitting there, quiet, dressed, and in my right mind. Those of you who are believers, you've experienced that, haven't you? Jesus changes you. He takes you as that, like, like a demon-possessed person, and, 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 and you're, no, you're no longer that way. If you're a believer, you should be sitting there quiet, dressed, and in your right mind, just as these men were. And by the way, if you've never experienced this kind of a radical transformation, then, then you have to ask the question, have I actually been transformed? If, you, if you're not any different... From, from you know when you claim to be an unbeliever to now being a believer, then you have to ask the question, are you actually a believer in Christ? There must be a radical transformation. <laughs> Has to be. So what can we learn from this story? Well, there are a lot of things we can learn, but let me just point out four things for you here. Number one, that the demonic realm is real. It's real. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it's there. <laughs> now, there, there's, there's two pendulum swings when it, when it comes to angels and demons and stuff, right? There, there's some people that, that you know, like, they, they overemphasize it, right? And it's, it's like all they talk about, all they can think about. You know, it, it's Satan's behind every rock, you know what I mean? And then, and then you get other people who, who just ignore it. They, oh, that's rubbish. That stuff doesn't exist. They, they, they don't, they don't want to believe it. But Jesus believed it. The demonic realm is real. In fact, I love, uh, I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis obviously believed in the demonic realm. Any of you ever read the Screwtape Letters? Any of you read the Screwtape Letters? Anyway, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he has the, the senior demon, Screwtape, who tells his nephew, Wormwood, that if he gets his human to think he's not there, he can control everything the person does. Do you notice that? Just get the human, get your human, because the demons all had their human, so to speak. Just get your human to believe you don't exist, there's no such thing as the demonic realm, and then you'll be able to get them to do whatever you want. That's the case with too many Christians today. I hope that's not the case with you. We, We must be intellectually believing in Satan and the demons. And we need to believe... And then we need to act on that belief like they actually exist. The Bible says that all Christians have three enemies. Okay? Your enemy, number one, is the world. Enemy number two is your indwelling sin or your sin nature. And enemy number three is this demonic realm. Satan and these demons are your enemy. We have to believe that and act like they are. Take on the armor of God so you can fight against the devil. Spiritual warfare is real. It's very real. And most people from a third world country, you don't have to convince them of this reality. They believe it. They see it. They see demon-possessed people. They see people doing amazing things, calling down lightning out of clear blue sky, walking on fire, stabbing themselves and not getting hurt, and doing weird stuff like that. They see it. They believe it. But at the same time, we need to understand that Satan has lost, okay? All right? Let's, let's not go the other pendulum swing. Satan's lost. He's a defeated foe. And Jesus conquered him when he died on the cross. He accomplished the, the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the head of Satan would be crushed. So, yes, yeah, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but we need to understand also at the same time, our victory is, is dependent on the degree in which we are centered on Christ. Are you going to take up that armor of salvation? That's, the gospel is, is your armor, essentially. And you have one weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, the, number one, the demonic realm is real. Number two, demons want only to torment and kill. It is, it is a lie of this world and Satan and these demons to think that they actually want to help people. 
They don't want to help any person achieve any sort of a success, at least not in the, the long term of things. They do, they do not possess people so, uh, so they can have their bodies. They possess because they, they actually know their time is short. They know there's, there is a time when their time is going to come to an end, and then they'll spend all eternity in the lake of fire. So they don't possess people and, and do with people what they want just, just because, they, it's not because they love that person. It's because they want to get it back at God. They want to torture God's creatures until that final day of judgment. Remember Peter said Satan is like that roaring lion walking about this earth. And what is he doing? He's seeking whom he may devour. So demons only want to torment and kill. Number three, what else can we learn from this story is that Christ's disciples have authority over the demonic world. Unlike what some people think, we, we don't have to use incantations. You don't, you don't have to memorize some kind of a formula to drive out demons. You don't have to find out what the, the name of the demon is. You know, some people think that way, right? You know, you've got to find out the name of the demon, ask him, command him to tell you your name, their name, so, so you can deal with that demon. No, you don't. You don't have to come up with some elaborate incantation so you can deal with demons. No, you don't. Jesus actually provides the model. Now, you're not Jesus, okay? But um, Jesus, he didn't need to know the name of the demons, right? No, they told him, but he didn't know the need. Jesus had the power and the authority over those demons. He just told them to go, and they, and they went. You have authority over the demonic world as long as you do it in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Okay, Don't take it lightly. <laughs> there are some people in the book of Acts that took it too lightly and the demons dealt with them and they ended up running out of the house naked. Remember that story? Don't, don't take that lightly. You don't want to mess around here. Okay, But Jesus did give his disciples authority over the demonic world. And number four, the Gentile mission continues. Same Gentile mission that Matthew introduced in the genealogy is continuing here. Remember the genealogy that Matthew brought up? There were Gentiles mentioned in the line of Christ. People like Rahab and Ruth, just to name a few. Those are Gentiles. Those weren't Jews. They weren't Israelites. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we see that the Abrahamic covenant stated that God chose Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so we see, we see that blessing that God mentions in Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. It, it, is con- it is continuing. The Gentile mission continues. Jesus actually made a trip to a Gentile area. He is showing his disciples that I don't just love Jews. I don't, love, I don't just love my chosen people, the Israelites. I love all peoples of the earth, and so should we. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Why, why would Jesus bother to take them across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, to this Gentile region? I think Jesus wanted to give his disciples a glimpse of this universal mission, which is going to end. Remember, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commands... In Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. I think that's one of the reasons for that. Well, let's quickly look at the third miracle here. We see that Jesus has power over sin. Jesus has power over sin. Matthew chapter 9. Remember, chapter divisions are not inspired. Uh, In fact, our, our English Standard Version starts chapter 9 with an and. See that? Starts with an and. (laughs) <laughs> and is a, is a joining word, right? It's kind of like glue, joining these, these together. And so we see, again, we've, we've got this setting here in chapter 9, verse 1. It's, we got, it says that they get into a boat. He crossed over and came to his own city, which was the city of Capernaum. So he goes back over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, back to Capernaum. And look what happens. Look what happens here. Here's the action in verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. In other words, a paralyzed man. Someone who can't walk. He's in, in, and he's lying on a bed. He's lying on a bed. He can't walk. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. 
your sins are forgiven. Wow. Notice here at first, Jesus doesn't deal with his paralyzed state. Jesus deals with his sin problem. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's an objection to what Jesus says here. Because there are some people who are listening. People who don't like Jesus. And they're looking for any little thing that they can get at Jesus. And look what their objection is in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves... Notice, who are they speaking? They're, they're speaking to themselves, not to Jesus at this point. And here's what they're saying to themselves. This man is blaspheming. They understand what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is claiming to be God, because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, I can forgive sins, and I will forgive sins, and I do forgive sins, and he does. By the way, Jesus again shows that he is God in verse 4, because even though those guys are kind of off in the corner speaking amongst themselves, Jesus knows what they're thinking, because look what verse 4 says. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? Verse 6 gives the purpose of the miracle. Okay, You want to know why Jesus is doing this miracle? Look at verse 6. Jesus says the purpose of the miracle. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then, or he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What's the result? Verse 7. What does the paralytic do? He rose and went home. In other words, he obeyed Jesus Christ. He did exactly what the all-powerful all one said to do. The one who has authority, he obeys. He went home after he rose. And then we see the response. Here's an interesting response in verse 8. Actually, there's two responses here in verse 8. Look at this, verse 8. When the crowds saw it, number one, the first response is, they were afraid They were afraid. But notice the next response, because there's an and. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Notice notice it says authority to men. uh, Apparently they didn't see Jesus Christ as God. But they understood that this man had great authority who could deal with sin. He had this kind of a power. So what lessons can can we learn from this miracle? Number one, the root problem of the human race is sin. That is your root problem. That is the root problem of your neighbors, your your family, your friends, your workmates, and everybody in this universe. The root problem of the human race is sin. The primary human dilemma is, is not sickness. It's sin. Your predominant problem is not sickness or anything else. It's sin. Sin is the origin of all sickness and suffering. Remember, how did God create everything? He said it was very good. He created the perfect man, and out of him made the perfect woman in a perfect environment. They could do whatever they want except for one thing. They had perfect fellowship with God. It was a great place. And they blew it. They fell, Genesis chapter 3. And... So sin's the origin of our sickness and our suffering and the the problems and the wars and everything else we have in this world. So here's a question for you. Was this man's paralysis the result of his sin? Remember, a lot of people thought that way. Remember? In fact, that, that, that thinking was even going back to Job's day. Remember, Job's friends thought, Hey, Job, all these problems you're having is a result of your sin. You need to repent, Job. And even in, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of people who thought this way. This, man, this man's paralysis is a result of sin. Well, Matthew doesn't answer that specific question because that's not the point of the book of Matthew. He's showing Jesus has power both to heal and to forgive. Jesus has the authority and the power to deal with, with the sickness or the, the ailment as well as his sin. 
And by the way, we know that, that sin is, is not always the issue. Not all illness is directly linked to sin, because Jesus points that out in John chapter 9. Just read John chapter 9. The, the disciples asked Jesus, did, hey, did, is this man's blindness a result of his, his parents' sin? Is that why he's blind? Jesus says, no. I've given him blindness so he can glorify God. God will be glorified through him. So Jesus points out and, and, and shows that not all sin or not all illness is linked to sin. But some sickness is, and in the final analysis of things, all human ills actually flow from the fall, from Genesis chapter 3 and our own sinful condition. Because not only did Adam and Eve fall and, and, and they sinned, but you and I are born in sin. And so the problems you and I have stem back to our sin nature. So the root problem of the human race is sin. Number two, spiritual healing is the greatest miracle of all. Okay, think, think about it. If Jesus healed this man so he could walk again, so he's no longer paralyzed, and didn't do anything about his sin, what good would that do? I mean, Jesus said, you can gain the whole world, but if you lose your own soul, what does it profit you? So spiritual healing is the greatest miracle of all. Now, I've got another question for you. Is there healing in the atonement? Oh, theologians love this one. In other words, here, here, let me word the question another way for you. Does the forgiveness of sin by Jesus' atonement always lead to physical healing or good health? Notice the word always. Okay? When, in other words, when you become a Christian and, and Jesus deals with the penalty of your sin, do you, you get good health, healing? Can't, is cancer going to be gone or whatever? And the answer is, by the way, the, this might surprise you, the answer is yes in an ultimate sense. In the ultimate sense. Not in the temporal sense. All who are saved from sin by Jesus are one day going to be delivered from all physical problems, but not necessarily in this life. Okay? And that's why I'm saying in the ultimate sense, Revelation tells us that one day there's going to be no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying, no more suffering and pain. It's all going to be gone because you're going to be perfect. Your sin nature is going to be gone. God's going to remove every, all the old nasty stuff and create everything new. By the way, part of the answer to the question here is found in actually Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Do you, do you actually remember what Jesus said and why he came? Why did Jesus come to the earth? Matthew 1, 21 says he came to save his people from their sin. So the final purpose of his coming was to deal with sin. He didn't come to ignore it. He, Jesus didn't come to just kind of gloss over it, to treat it lightly. And think about that. How different is that from the people you work with? What do they think about their sin? Your neighbors. What do your neighbors think about their sin? <laughs> Today we do any of three options. Let me give you three options to think about. This is what, what most people do with sin. Number one, a lot of people just ignore it. That's one option. You can just ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist. Number two, we can blame it on someone else or something else, right? We can, we can do what Adam and Eve did. What does Eve do? Well, Eve points at the snake. Adam points at his wife. And we've been blame-shifting ever since. But if we don't do that, then we can, well, what do other people do? You know, people, you know, people come before the court. You know, they've been caught doing something wrong. They've broken the law. And what do they do? Well, you know... My parents were divorced when I was five years old. I just can't help myself. Or, you know, my friends were drinking, and, and you know, I just lost control of myself. I got drunk, and you know, I couldn't help it. Or, you know, I got caught up in this gang. You know, this gang made me take the drugs, and, you know, I just lost control of myself. Right? We start blaming our environment or whatever. Right? We want to blame shift. Well, that's one option. Or number three, we can pretend it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sin doesn't matter. Well, I got news for you. That's not what Jesus thinks. Because Jesus came to save his people from their sin. That's why he left heaven. He didn't come to deal with, just deal with people's physical problems. 
He came to deal with sin. Sin does matter. It's the source of all your problems, and Jesus takes it very seriously. So we need to praise God for the cross of Christ. That shows just how serious sin is. It required the crucifixion of His Son on the cross. And that's the final solution. Well, number three, what else can we learn? Jesus' authority to forgive sin proves His deity. He's proving His deity in this story. It's very interesting that the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees here accuse Jesus of blaspheming. Why are they doing that? Because they recognize only God can forgive sins. And they didn't think Jesus was God. Therefore, they're accusing him of blaspheming. Well, since Jesus forgave the sin, his unspoken claim to deity had to be upheld. And he did that by actually healing the man of his paralysis. And this is why the example of healing here is so important. Jesus is backing up his claim to deal with sin by healing the man of his paralysis. The issue was the ability of Jesus to forgive sin. Could he back that up? I mean, think about it. Anybody can can claim to have that authority, and some do, right? Even, you know, like various popes in the past have claimed to have that kind of ability. Hey, you just write a papal bull and you know, whatever, I can, yeah, I can deal. You just confess your sin to me, I'll deal with it. There, there have been people in the past who've claimed that kind of authority, but do they actually have that kind of authority? No, they don't. Only Jesus has that kind of authority. And so if somebody joins the forgiveness of sins to, to a healing, physical healing miracle like this, then actually, and, and then they actually go and perform the healing, what is that doing? It, it's proving the claim. So Jesus, has the, has, he's making the claim that he can deal with sin, and he proves it by healing the man of his physical problem. So Jesus' authority to forgive sin proves his deity. Number four, last, Christians can expect opposition when proclaiming truth. That's what happens to Jesus here. That, that's what repeatedly happened to Christ. And, and in fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this. You read particularly chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, those chapters there, Jesus is showing us that one of the things you need to understand is Jesus said, the world hates me. Therefore, because the world hates me, the world will hate you. That's what Jesus said. So Christians can expect opposition. You proclaim the truth, you're going to be called a hate monger. You're going to be called a, a uh, you know, a, a, you know, something phobic or whatever, right? You're going to get called something. You're going to get spray painted on your house. You're going to, you're going to get your letter box knocked out of the ground. You, there's going to be a number of things that are probably going to happen to you when you proclaim the truth. They aren't going to like it. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 3. The world is in darkness. Darkness doesn't like the light. You proclaim the light... You, you, you give out the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. You show him to the world around. Ooh, they don't like that. <laughs> that makes them feel very uncomfortable. Why, why is it so much bad stuff happens in the dark, by the way, at nighttime, when they're supposed to be sleeping? They love that. Right? Evil thrives in those kind of situations. And so the message is clear. Christians can expect opposition, just as Jesus did when he's proclaiming the truth. He received opposition, and he says we can expect the same. We shouldn't be surprised when unsaved people turn on us in anger. That, in fact, we should expect that. It should be the normal thing, right? Expect it. That's what's going to happen. In fact, Paul told Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We need to expect that. And if we're not getting that, then we've got to ask ourselves, am I living godly? Well, these are some things we can learn. What, and may I remind you, what's the whole point in all this? Jesus said the whole point. The whole point was in... Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. The Son of Man has authority. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all authority and all the power. He can deal with nature. He can deal with, with uh, 
with, with diseases, ailments, physical problems, and he deals with the, with the worst problem we have, in, which is our sin. So if he can deal with that, we can trust him then, can't we? If he can deal with all those sort of things, he has great authority. He has all authority, all power, and we must trust him, not just for salvation, but for that bill you have due, for the doctor report that's going to come to you, for our children, our grandchildren, for our need, whatever our needs are. We must trust him completely because he has all authority and all power. May God give us the grace to, to trust that kind of a God.